Imagine this scenario. International aid workers manage to help a young woman escape sex slavery in Cambodia. They even manage to find a place of rescue and rehabilitation for her. But what will prevent the brothel owners from just going out and deceiving another young woman to replace her? Is there anyone who can make a real impact at the root of the problem? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, it's great to have you here on Signs Radio this week. I have on the Zoom, which the stocks are uh, going up for Zoom in these COVID-19 times, I understand. So yeah, I'm chatting via Zoom with Jacob Sarkody from International Justice Mission. How are you, Jacob? Good, thanks, Kent. Good, good to be on the uh, on the Zoom with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it certainly is. Now, uh, Jacob, I was just hoping that you could give us a, a little bit of an outline about what International Justice Mission does. I mean, we we have an article appearing in this month's edition of Signs of the Times magazine, the, the April issue, looking at one of your investigators at one of your international offices who's just going by the name V to protect his, his identity. Pretty interesting stories about sort of going behind the scenes, going undercover in, you know, human trafficking and yep. modern slavery and, and this sort of stuff. So are you able to just to step back from that just for a minute and just give us a little bit of an outline of what IJM is, is all about? International Justice Mission is the largest global anti-slavery organization in the world. Its wow. mission actually is to protect the poor from violence. So often it's something, there's some things that we take for granted in our Australian context. You know, if, if we hear or see a potential crime or someone who's vulnerable, who is vulnerable to a threat of violence, we typically can call the police and most of the time there will be a response and, and there will be resources deployed to protect that person. That creates an environment of, of safety and security for many people. This is basically what, what we call the, the rule of law, I guess. If, if, you have, right. if you have a nation where the rule of law is in operation, people do what they're supposed to do, it, it does give a, a measure of safety for all of us, doesn't it, but particularly the vulnerable in society? It really does, and what it's been what's been found uh, to be the case globally is that while we experience that mostly here in Australia, some five billion people around the world do not have access to justice. And if you were going to go to work and and you were worried about whether or not you might be abducted, tricked, trafficked, uh, sexually abused, uh, it makes living very difficult. There's no freedom. And so for IJM, when we started out 22 years ago, our desire was to see who in the world does that affect the most. And what we found was the poor and vulnerable are the ones who have least access to justice, who have least access to protection from the law, from those who actually uh, are meant to protect them. And 
we focus on doing four key things to help protect the poor from violence. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that we do is we look to rescue those vulnerable men, women and children who are being exploited often in a context of forced labour slavery, maybe, as I mentioned before, like sexual abuse or violence committed within the home or even trafficking on the high seas in the Thai fishing industry. So Mm -hmm. we try and identify with local police building their capacity to actually go and find those people. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is we prosecute the perpetrator because we realise that without prosecution, it's very difficult to create any deterrence. By deterrence, I mean the knowledge that if you commit this crime or you will will think again before you do it. And Mm. so we prosecute in sometimes very, in contexts where, say, a trafficking offence has never been been a conviction. We try and get that through the justice system. When we also work to restore, this is the third thing, to restore the survivor, who really the justice journey requires restoration of the survivor, so that person can go on to live a healthy and protected life. And the fourth thing that we do ultimately is we want to transform and strengthen a public justice system so that it performs what it's meant to do, that we can eventually actually move out of that area and know that we've built the capacity with local partners to protect the most vulnerable from violence. Mm. It's it's really interesting uh, that I guess particularly the the second and and fourth aspects of, of what you're talking about there, Jacob, because there are a lot of NGOs around that you know focus on you know rehabilitation uh, of people who have been trafficked or or have been abused in different situations or e- even sort of rescue kind of situations in some ways. But the engagement that IJM has with you know police and courts and prosecutors that seems a pretty unique thing for an NGO to do. And and I understand that, you know, in, in the article in, in this month's um, Signs of the Times magazine, the guy writing the article actually has a police background. And I understand that's the case with a number of IJM people. They have backgrounds in law. They have backgrounds in law enforcement. Yes. Is, is that a pretty unique thing for an NGO to like get involved with the police, get involved with the court system like that? Yeah, look, it is. It is quite unique. I think particularly if you think about the international development or broader kind of mission organisations, often we have sort of left those things that are left to the government to one side and we've gotten on with what we can get our hands on. And what we've noticed, particularly when it comes to the public justice system and really addressing the problem of poverty is that you you can't actually address the issue of poverty without addressing a broken justice system. And so, you know, in order to really kind of go, where are the most poor? If you go and find them, you're like around the world, if you have a look, some of the most vulnerable and poor people are often enslaved. And Mm. those people who are enslaved, they're actually being victims of crime. And so to think through how can we support law enforcement development, actually where, we, where most people would write off a police force as being corrupt, and often we can find many people within the police force where there's corruption, we try and come alongside. Often it takes years to build trust and to say we're here to help and we have 
people who are trained like an investigative in, in your article, we have people who have come with years of training who can really do tremendous work quickly in building up the capacity of the local law enforcement, local prosecutors, magistrates, all of that capacity training has a big impact. Wow, wow. And I mean, this, this is a, an interesting area or a challenging area, I imagine, because, I mean, look, maybe the perspective I have is, you know, somewhat jaded or, or stereotyped, but I, I guess I have the impression that in many developing countries of the world, you know, police officers and even, you know, like magistrates and, you know, officers of, of the court often not paid extremely well and they're therefore very vulnerable to organised crime actually, you know, slipping them a payment, you know, regularly in order to turn a blind eye to, you know, whether it be drug dealing, whether it be human trafficking, prostitution, you know, other forms of, of slavery. How do you actually go about engaging with those justice systems in a way that is going to improve them like knowing or you know being aware that there are those structural issues and those cultural issues through those criminal justice systems yeah so i think if i had to explain it the way that we work in a context like say the philippines is we begin with collaborative casework is what we call it where we go okay here's a young child They have been exploited, say, by what we call cyber sex trafficking or the live-streamed abuse of children commissioned by Westerners online uh, as a commercial activity. And and we go, okay, we've, we've got this case. Let's take a local police force and we'll take that case and we'll put it through the court systems with the local prosecutor and social workers and we'll actually take it through the public justice system to see... Where is, in, if you think about justice system like a pipeline, like where is the justice leaking out? Mm. And how can we actually understand why it is being dysfunctional? And so we take that collaborative approach and we sometimes that might involve actually getting a memorandum of understanding with very senior politicians or commanders and building trust and actually going, look, we, you know, maybe 15% of the force has corrupt tendencies, but if we get the majority on the right track, we believe we can swing it. We can swing it in the right direction. So we take that collaborative approach. And what we do after case, after case, after case, it builds a body of evidence. And that body of evidence speaks for itself. And actually we find that many of the local police officers or magistrates or, or prosecutors are very responsive to that or they're very passionate about actually doing what they signed up for in the first place. And so we take that collaborative approach and then once we have that body of evidence, we then look at how can we transform this justice system. We call it justice system transformation. How can we actually systematically address the shortfalls in the justice system? And maybe that's in legislation. Maybe that's in police practices. Maybe that's in a, is there a, you know, for example, in many countries, there's no foster system. So how do you care for children where they, we don't want to send them back to vulnerable families where they are at risk of being re-trafficked, but they need to find another place. So can we build capacity in the, in the social welfare system? And, and ultimately, we have to engage at the most senior levels and help them do what they're there for. That's what we want to bring praise. So if we do a rescue operation, you often see a media release 
is put out and we will be praising the local police for what they've done. We'll be praising the local prosecutor for getting a, you know, a precedent set in the court system. We really want to see and believe that they can bring justice to the poor like they really want to, but it can take a decade's work. Some cases might be first found in 2008, but it's not until, say, 2018 when that the actual perpetrator gets sentenced. So it's a long journey. These court systems are not like what we have in Australia. They can be cluttered with case files pouring out of the hallways. You know, it can take months, if not years, to just get a hearing. So it's about perseverance and really believing that we're prepared to stand with the survivor for the full endurance what it takes to get justice. Wow. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm just getting a, a real picture of the complexity of what is involved and the persistence uh, that is needed to get these things over the line. But, but also, I, I do understand what you're saying. You know, pe- people join the police force, they join the justice system, they study law, you know, often with a fairly idealistic sort of thought in their heart, you know, that I'm going to make a positive difference. And then it's easy to get discouraged and sidetracked along the way. But it, as you say, if you can see successes and if, if the, you know, your, your media and, and your public are saying, well, you guys are doing a good job, uh, particularly in a sort of an honour and shame society, that is going to be a, a real plus. You know, that's, that's going to be better for your status and better for your self-esteem than, than receiving, you know, payments un, under the table or whatever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so Jacob, you're the uh, the chief operating officer for International Justice Mission in Australia. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? How did yeah. you come to this role? What What are you passionate about? What What drives you to get involved in this work? Which must be sort of pretty traumatic sometimes, you know, to to hear the stories that that you hear. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's an honour to be able to serve at International Justice Mission Australia. We've been uh, here for about six years and we've seen thousands of Australians join the movement to end modern slavery. Uh, I, I joined after about a decade in the international development sector, mostly focused on advocacy and, and, and fundraising amongst young people, actually, trying to help us say, what, what role can we play in the world? And do we believe in the ability to stretch out our hand and help people who are beyond our shores. And so my background is in human rights advocacy. And so what I found really helpful about IJM is just as it's real clear and tangible approach for seeking justice. You know, so often there's like we want to raise awareness about an issue and that's great. But I found with IJM this deep, passionate commitment to endure to really materially see change to actually end slavery in an area to actually hold people to account and so international justice mission australia really joins that mission in in believing that australians can be change makers can have a direct contribution a direct partnership to someone who would, might be in bonded labour in India, for example. You know, one story I like to share is a colleague of mine, Alice, who is in Tamil Nadu state in, in Chennai, and she leads many of our work, much of our work there to bring about 
freedom for those who are in bonded labour, slavery. And she started with IJM some 15 years ago and she knew nothing about slavery or forced labour. What she could do was she could translate into local dialects and she didn't have a law degree. She really had no experience. But over the time, she acquired these amazing skills to eventually lead some 170 rescue operations that have led to thousands of and thousands of bonded laborers, forced laborers in India who are now free and living a new life and has resulted in some of those people then going out and running their own operations in their own communities. These are survivors who are now leaders, global, even becoming global leaders and advocates in ending the, the reality of forced labor slavery. And all of that starts with a connection with someone in Australia who really believes that it doesn't matter where someone else is in the world, the idea that someone is enslaved to someone else under the threat of violence, who can meet that violence out at any time with impunity, that that is actually wrong and that it's actually stoppable. And so we want Australians to understand that they can have a direct engagement through their giving, through their advocacy, through their prayers, to help bring this modern phenomenon, which really goes unreported a lot, to an end, particularly in our region where we work in the Asia-Pacific. So, yeah, that's what iJAM Australia is about, and I I have the the joy of being able to lead our operations team, and at the moment I'm actually playing the role of interim chief executive. And so, yeah, the chance to share stories like Alice's and other survivors is um, just awesome. Wow, no, that's, that, that is awesome, Jacob. You know, I can understand that an operation like yours would require a, a lot of donor dollars. It's not a profit-making enterprise by any stretch of the imagination. So you, you've got a website, Was is it ijm.org.au? Yeah, ijm.org.au. And if anyone would like to learn more, please just log on there and, and you can read stories about people who've been brought from slavery to freedom. You can actually sign up to get a monthly breaking news letter that will tell you more and also some people you like to pray and there's a there's an area where you can sign up to pray as well and get a weekly prayer updates so yeah head along there and see what perks your interest okay now the the other thing that you mentioned um before you said you know you, you can donate you can pray as you just mentioned and i want to talk about that in, in a second but you also said mm-hmm. you can advocate what can someone in australia do in terms of advocacy i mean what does that mean exactly and and how does it help yeah so you know look we i mean the fact that we're having this conversation i think is is advocacy is is actually saying let's not forget that we are able to enjoy as i said earlier in our conversation access to justice but there are millions of people for whom that's not a reality and and they live in a state of fear or threat of violence. And so I think for many Australians, just learning about that fact is really important. I think the second thing I would say is to advocate within your local community, wherever that might be, to make decisions which actually will protect people from harm. And that might be actually asking the question about whether or not the products and the things that you consume are, are they, are they do people know how or where they're procured from. And actually a lot can be done in just changing attitudes and beliefs around whether or not we should just go for the lowest price 
or whether we should really think clearly and hard around whether we know something has been procured ethically. And I think that that helps to start the conversation. Uh, and, and then lastly, I would say is, you know, we have an overseas aid budget in Australia and we, we really believe that Australians have a lot to, to contribute in bringing an end to um, poverty in our region. But there's not often a, a much of a focus around modern slavery. So maybe you could raise awareness with your local member about this problem and say why it's important to you, your local political member, and, and say, you know, how might the Australian government put more resources into ending slavery and human trafficking in our region. And mm. so there's a couple of things. But we, we, we recognise that it's pretty big steps for people. So we had a program called our Justice Advocate Program where you can actually sign up online and become a justice advocate with IJM and have some online training, join our local community, join a community, an online community nationally of advocates and, and do this together because it can be quite a daunting experience. So I'd encourage people if they're interested in becoming an advocate on this issue, why not sign up and become a justice advocate? Yeah, yeah. Look, that, that that does sort of make it pretty clear that, you know, we're talking about a, a global issue, a, a complex issue, and it's important to sort of have your facts straight before you, you know, go in all guns blazing to your to your local, yeah, to, to your local fed, federal member or whatever. But, you know, in regards to Australia's international aid budget, I mean, I understand that successive governments, you know, both um, coalition and Labor have, you know, cut back international aid commitments over, over the last you know, few governments and there were promises, you know, to raise the foreign aid budget to a, you know, to a certain level of GDP and that just hasn't been reached. It looks like it's not going to be reached. And I think yeah. we, we do need people of, of, of goodwill of all political stripes to urge our governments to say, hey, you know, there's there's poverty out there and, and it has implications. We, we need to, you know, make a, the positive difference. You know, we have a, a moral our responsibility, really, to um, you know, to, to have justice and, and equality in in the world. Yeah, totally agree. And yeah. we we join with other Christian organisations and other um, international development agencies in in trying to encourage the government to not lose sight of of that, even when we're facing really big challenges like COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it makes me wonder, actually, if this, you know, COVID-19 situation isn't in some ways going to really dampen the business model of, of the human traffickers. You know, if, if their business model requires, you know, moving people, you know, over borders or even within countries, and we're in a situation where there are increasing restrictions on travel, I, I wonder if this actually might not be an opportunity to, to do something about that. It's an interesting question. I mean, one of our area, one of our caseworks I mentioned earlier in the Philippines is the is cyber sex trafficking or the online sexual exploitation of children. And actually, our teams in the Philippines are quite concerned that with more and more children having to stay home, there's more risk of children being exploited violently and in horrid conditions online. But as as more and more say Westerners are also at home. And it's one of our it's one of our hardest areas of work where we've seen you know literally almost six hundred children we've rescued from live stream sexual abuse in the last three years in the Philippines, and much of that's been from unfortunately from Australians. And so the business model of trafficking and forced labor slavery really 
it's only possible because as there's there's a very weak judicial or, or very weak justice system response to an extraordinarily large commercial enterprise. And so while I'd hoped to see a reduction in, in trafficking, my the experience of what I've witnessed with IJM over the last few years suggests that actually this is a very vulnerable time for mm. people who can't escape from not only the virus but from their unsafe work areas or their people who are holding them in fear will not want to make sure they don't lose their greatest asset which is their profitable slave wow as, as hard as that is to hear wow so, that's yeah that's that, that, that's really that's really sobering jacob now look you, you've mentioned a couple of times that ijm is a christian organization you've mentioned the, the need for prayer it i guess it sort of strikes me that the kind of work you're doing I could see it fitting under the United Nations, you know, for, for example, you might even be, be able to get funding to do it, you know, to um, do capacity building for criminal justice systems to, you know, look, looking at law reform and, and all this sort of stuff. You could easily do that. Well, possibly not easily, but, but I, I can see it happening under a, an agency like the UN. And yet you have decided not to sort of go in that direction. You've decided to remain as a Christian organization. What is it about, you know, a biblical perspective? Perspective, a Christian perspective. I mean, look, there are even Christians out there who, who say, you know, what does social justice have to do with the gospel? It's a corruption, it's a distraction. Why does a IJM continue to be a Christian NGO? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. IJM, before anything else, it sees and understands itself as a Christian community of spiritual formation where we are on a walk personally and collectively with how we can come to know and love God more. That's really what we are so uh, we're really committed to. And so we, we practice that every day. We have, for example, at 8.30 in the morning, in every office around the world, you'll find us in stillness, in solitude, in prayer, actually remembering that seeking justice begins with seeking the God of justice. This is actually his responsibility, and so we want to lay that before him. And, and then we join together later in the day in corporate prayer, praying for people and believing that this God of justice actually loves bringing people into freedom, and he does that and is actively working to bring that about around the world every day. And so it's just that reminder that, yes, we have a mission, and that mission is to protect the poor from violence, but actually... We remind ourselves that the weight of sin, slavery, violence, extortion that happens around the world is too much for us to bear. It's actually God's responsibility. It's his weight, and we have to give that over to him. He, he allows us to share some of his heart and to actually see what his passions are. You know, I'm reminded of like Isaiah 58, which talks so much about what does right and proper worship look like? Mm. You know, what does it really look like to honour God? And Isaiah says it is to loosen the yoke, to loosen the chains of injustice, to break the yoke that is holding people in suffering. And yeah. a particular and so commitment and, and that, a particular commitment to the, the widow and, and the orphan and the, the fatherless and the stranger. Yeah. It does come through the, the Bible again and again, doesn't it? It's a really strong theme. That's it. And our verse that really inspires us is Isaiah 1, verse 17, that we would 
seek justice and defend the oppressed. And I think we want to work with partners around the world. So we're definitely not an organisation that will say we're only going to pursue those who might be Christians. For example, we work to bring freedom and justice to anyone who's in who's enslaved or is is experiencing violence and so one of the things that we do do is we have to work though with with governments who maybe they're hostile to christians but we still believe that we can work with them we work with corporations we work with the global church we work with international development actors because we know that if we're really going to end slavery they have to be involved they have to be actually understanding the role that they can play in helping local governments protect the poor from violence. So, yeah, so while we do, majority of our funding is from um, faithful people in local churches or parts of the, or different parts around the world, we're not exclusive to that. And we have actually formed some great partnerships with corporations like Target or Walmart to fight trafficking in, say, Thailand in the Thai fishing industry or forced labour in India. And so we think that people of goodwill can come alongside this mission and really bring about great change. Yeah, wow. No, that's that, that's that's really powerful and, and, and good to hear, Jacob. Look, I really appreciate the the time that you've you've given us today, and I'm you know again just hearing about the the work of IJAM, you know, really blown away with with what you're doing there. And I would certainly encourage you know any of our listeners who want to know more about what International Justice Mission is doing to uh, jump on their website ijm.org.au, find out more, find out how you can help, and yeah, thanks so much for your time today, Jacob. No problems, and thanks so much for the chance to share about this this topic. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit scienceofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.